morning, everybody. My name's Scott. I will be reading the scripture today. Um, if you're using the Black Pew Bibles, it'll be on page 907. It's also going to be on the screen. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, all the way through chapter 3, verse 6. <clears throat> But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us, the fra- through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Chapter 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. This is God's word. Well, uh, last week, Pastor Benjamin introduced this short two-part series that we're doing from 2 Corinthians. As we as a church, gear up to, to send myself and our team of people to plant Midtown Community Church. And he mentioned uh, last week that we wanted to pull back the curtain a little bit, as it were, in these two weeks and talk about ministry and pastoring uh, a little bit more gritty and honest, um, that we didn't want to give another hoorah church planting sermon Um, because we've given a lot of those. And so last week, Benjamin preached about a pastor's heart for his people. And this week, I get the privilege of preaching about us as a people and our power for ministry. And and when we talk about pulling back the curtain, Pastor Benjamin last week mentioned, uh, I think what comes to our mind when we think about that image oftentimes is the story of the Wizard of Oz. And how whenever the curtain was pulled back, it revealed not a great wizard, but somebody who was an imposter. And to draw upon that story again, I wonder how many of us, if that curtain were drawn back and our Christian lives were exposed, if we're being honest, would say, we feel a lot like the Wizard of Oz. If somebody were to pull back the curtain and look honestly into our hearts, we'd say, I'm an imposter. When it comes to the Christian life, 
we all sometimes feel like we're imposters. Why do we feel that way? Well, I think in large part, it's because our lives lack the spiritual power that we see in the stories of the Bible. If you, if you open up your Bible, we see people used of God mightily. We, we see people who have an intimate, personal relationship with God. And although we may long for that, if, if, if we're honest, for many of us, we'd say that type of spiritual power is almost, feels like it's almost entirely absent from our lives. And I think we live in an age where where we don't experience the transcendent like that in our lives. Our world is hungry for an authentic experience of spiritual power. I think that's why our culture is experiencing such an uptick in things like Wicca and like Western forms of, of paganism. Because people understand materialism isn't cutting it. Like, that's not all that there is. There has to be something else, and we want to personally connect to it and experience it in our lives. So our question this morning is, how do we get true, real, spiritual power for ministry? How can we go from feeling like imposters to people that actually are confident that we have power to carry out the things that God calls us to do. Well, that's where 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and 3 come into play. And I hope that you leave this morning encouraged because God wants you to know today that you in him are not an imposter. He wants you to know his immeasurable power working within you. And so let's pray and ask him that he would show us that and meet us in this text. Would you pray with me? Father, we acknowledge that we don't have what we need and that we need you to break in and speak to us. We pray that you would encourage our hearts today. I pray that you would lift our heads and our eyes to Jesus, and that we would leave here not feeling like imposters, but feeling like people who actually have the power of God within us. And so meet us, we pray, and give us what we don't have. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to break up this text this morning in, into three different chunks. So first, at the end of chapter two, we're going to see the ministry for which we are insufficient. Next, we will look in chapter three, verses four through six, and see the spirit who is sufficient. And lastly, at the beginning of chapter three, we'll see the sign of the spirit's sufficiency. First, the ministry for which the spirit, for, or for which we are insufficient. Now, if you're gonna understand this text rightly, then, then we have to understand something about the context of the letter of 2 Corinthians. And Benjamin did a, a good job of sketching this out for us last week. But just to remind us, Paul's main concern in 2 Corinthians is to defend his ministry from the attacks of false teachers. Now, these false teachers had all sorts of accolades in the eyes of the world, that they had impressive resumes, they knew all the right people. But Paul, Paul was just a nobody. 
Uh, Paul was a guy who had one personal encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and now this guy thinks he's apostle, an apostle, so they would say. Come on, really? Like, like this guy? It seems like that guy, every time he opens his mouth, gets beaten within an inch of his life and people reject what he says. That guy's an apostle? And to combat these charges against his ministry, Paul spends this entire letter defending not so much his own name or reputation, but his ministry for the sake of Jesus. That's an important distinction. He defends his ministry for the sake of the gospel of Jesus. And here at the end of chapter two, Paul employs two metaphors that speak to the legitimacy of his ministry and I think teach us about what Christian ministry looks like for all of us. The first image that he draws from is that of a slave in procession. So let me paint a picture for you. And if this causes a little bit of PTSD, I'm so sorry, but I'm also not that sorry because I'm not a Philadelphia Eagles fan. It's the week after the Super Bowl, and the Kansas City Chiefs are having their victory parade. The city is electric, and they come through the center of town, and and everybody's going crazy, and all the Chiefs players are on the front of the float, like drinking champagne and waving their shirts and things around. But on the back, tied to the back of the float, is the entire roster of the Philadelphia Eagles being dragged through Kansas City wearing the Kansas City Championship t-shirts that they give out at the end of the game. Shame and submission, right? That's how probably some of you still feel about this year's Super Bowl. Um, And again, sorry, not sorry. But this is the kind of image that, that Paul draws upon here. So in the ancient world, when Rome would defeat an enemy nation, they would tie the prisoners of war to their chariots and drag them through town as an act of shame and submission to say, we won, you lost. But notice what the text says about Paul's position in this victory parade. Paul isn't riding on the chariot in the front as the conqueror. Paul, what does it say in verse 14? Is being led in procession. That's a technical Greek term that means Paul was on the back. Paul was the prisoner of war who had been conquered, who was being dragged behind Christ's chariot. Paul thanks God for this. What in the world could he, could he, could he be trying to get at? What's his angle? Well, I think here Paul is subverting his accusers, these false teachers, by putting on display the real nature of Christian ministry. Christian ministry does not promise that we get the place of honor. It doesn't mean that we get to call the shots. It doesn't mean that we get to direct things. Rather, it means that we are captives to Jesus Christ. It means that we've waved the white flag of surrender, that he is our captain and our king. And having Jesus as your captor often doesn't translate to metrics of visible success in your life and ministry. Take it from the Apostle Paul in chapter one. Sometimes it feels like you're dying. Sometimes it looks like failure. But even as we are vanquished captives, we are free and victorious. 
as Jesus talks about it, even as we lay down our lives, so we live. That's one image he uses. The second is that of a fragrant aroma. Let's read verses 14 through 16 again of of chapter 2. He says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Now that second metaphor builds on the image of the victory parade. So Paul is piggybacking images here. And oftentimes when the Romans would lead those victory processions through towns, they would have people in the parade who would be tasked to light and burn incense as they went through the town. So picture this. There's already the, 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 the image of we have conquered, and they come through the town, and then the scent of their victory just lingers throughout the town, even after the Roman procession has gone through. Smell is powerful. All right, think about that first whiff of glorious Thanksgiving Day food. On Thanksgiving Day, when you're like starving yourself because you want to eat as much as possible, and that first whiff of turkey comes and it like shoots up into your nostrils like in a cartoon, and then the rest of the day, that's all you can think about until you eat. You are controlled by that smell. But smell is also polarizing. Whitley and I, eat a lot of curry in our house. We really love curry. Uh, oftentimes, I'll either bring leftovers for lunch or I'll have these little pre-made packs from Trader Joe's. It's a polarizing thing in the office here. Uh, some people really like it. Other people, I won't name names, one of them maybe is the lead pastor of this church, shames me whenever I have <laughs> curry that wafts through the office. To some, it's a scent of life to life and others, I guess, death to death. But you see, true gospel ministry, just like smell, is both powerful and polarizing. When someone proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ, as Paul says elsewhere in the New Testament, it is the very power of God unto salvation. The good news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, and second coming to make all things new and just and right is a story that can flip the scripts of our lives. And praise God, that's why so many of us are sitting here today. It's powerful. But the scent of Christ through the proclamation of his gospel is also polarizing. Notice the present tense verbs here in verse 15. Those who are being saved. Those who are perishing. All people here are presented as moving in one of two directions. One commentator on this text says that when servants of Jesus open their mouth, quote, God dynamically divides the hearers into one of two groups. And when we open our mouths to proclaim the good news of Jesus, people either embrace him and move towards life or reject him to their own peril. In other words, none of us are stagnant. And so this morning, 
This, this is what this text means for us. This is uncomfortable. This morning, as you sit under the preaching of the gospel, at your hearing it and response, you are either moving towards life or towards death. There's no in-between. Christian ministry necessarily entails participating with God in both his work of life-bringing, of salvation, and his work of death, of judgment. That's weighty. That's a heavy thing. But that's what it means to be a minister of the gospel. It means that we're captives to Christ, led where he leads, partnering with him in his ministry of both salvation and judgment. And that should lead us all to the same place that Paul goes at the end of verse 16. Who is sufficient for these things? Who can do that? That is the right response when we stare the reality of Christian ministry in the face. Like our own spiritual bank account could never pay out enough to match both the call and cost of gospel ministry. We can't do it. But thankfully, we have a spirit who is sufficient to work through us. Look with me just at verse 4 of chapter 3. Paul there, just a few verses later, says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Now, wait a second. I thought Paul just exclaimed, who is sufficient for these things? And now he's saying, just like five or six verses later, that he has confidence. What gives? How how does that happen? Well, while acknowledging our own insufficiency in the face of Christian ministry is the right place for us to start, God doesn't want us to stay there. But so oftentimes, when we are faced with the call and cost of ministry, what we tend to do is either flee in fear or press forward in our own strength. Now, some of us, when we're faced with what it really means to be a Christian and what we're really called to, just think that we need to muster it up and keep going. Now, that can seem pretty noble, and you can maybe get by doing that for a little bit, but pretty soon, you're either going to get crushed or you're going to be proud and antagonistic in your ministry. You're not going to be able to admit whenever you fail and make mistakes, Just one example of this, like like, this kind of thinking makes us want to trust in human fads and, uh, and traditions and things like that in order to actually do the work of God. So like for instance, in the face of uh, the rapid de-churching that our country is experiencing, the right, I think the right response to that is to look at that, look at what we're called to and say, who is sufficient for these things? But some people may say, well, we have this new uh, curriculum and all these new tools, and so if we just implement those in the right way, then maybe people will start coming back to church and start meeting Jesus again. This approach to ministry may create the appearance of a great wizard on the surface with a bunch of great ideas and big flashy things, but in reality, it reveals just an ordinary person behind the curtain who is striving to keep up appearances. But then others of us, when we see the reality of the call and cost of gospel ministry, we don't push forward 
because we're too realistic for that. We know we can't do that. And so we crumble. We run away in fear. We, we, we are content with the status quo. We try our hardest just to blend in and survive because we are terrified of what God actually calls us to. And yet this approach leaves us fearful, not just, of, uh, not just of what God calls us to, but also fearful that other people will pull back the curtain and find behind our lives not true spiritual power, but somebody who is terrified. And friends, let me just say honestly that I have felt the weight of ministry more acutely in the last 18 months than in my entire Christian life combined up to that point. I feel like Oz most days, like an imposter, like somebody who wants to just run away, who wants to turn his phone off, who wants to hide and not see my non-Christian neighbors. God has exposed just how insufficient that I am, and that should be a grace to me, but when I'm exposed, I often just want to run away from Christian ministry. And I've heard that that's been the case of other members of our core team as well. I was talking with one guy on our core team who was processing through what it means for MCC to actually be launching, and he said, friends of mine that I have invited to MCC actually said they're going to come. And we're like, that's, I was like, that's great. And he goes, yeah, but what happens if they don't like what they hear? What does that mean for my life? my friendship with them. See, this friend of mine was confronted with his own insufficiency for the task of bringing the gospel into their lives, and so he was tempted to run and, and, and shrink back in fear from that. And yet, to return to the Apostle Paul, he has confidence. How does he get that? Where does that come from? Let's read verses four through six of chapter three. He says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Paul doesn't run away from his calling in fear. Paul doesn't power through on his own strength. I mean, like, if you, if you thought he might, verse 5 kind of kills that. He's like, hey, by the way, just in case you thought that's where my confidence came from, it's not. Paul, Paul doesn't just do, like, fi a five-minute breathing exercise to get in touch with his own grounded strength and then press forward. That's not what this is here. Paul's confidence comes through Christ toward God, from the spirit of Christ at work in him, and that's where our confidence can come from too. Our confidence comes from a savior who himself knew the cost and call of ministry. Jesus, although he was the king of the universe, came down to earth, and rather than taking the place of the one sitting in the chariot, he first got behind the procession. Jesus was led as a sheep to the slaughter. 
as a slave to the cross. He lived his life and went to his death in submission to and under the sufficient power of the Holy Spirit. And yet Jesus, by the same sufficient power of the Spirit, rose three days later from the dead and he's seated in heaven where he's been given the Spirit without measure and delights to pour that Spirit on his church. Now, that's abstract, right? At least in, it's, it's abstract in terms of our life, but it has so many practical implications for our ministry. It sets us free from slavery to our own insufficiency. You see, both the person who runs away in fear and the person who tries to push forward in the face of the true weight of ministry are believing a type of works righteousness. Their confidence their trust is in something other than Christ. They both think that God's response to our own insufficiency, is it's as if God says, yep, all right, you're insufficient, but keep trying. Just keep trying. And, and the proud person who wants to push forward says, okay, I will. And the other person says, nah, I can't do that. But both of them are looking at themselves for their confidence. But here's the good news for us all this morning. The Spirit of God is our sufficiency. Christ is our confidence. God has given us his Spirit. And think about what that means for just a second. The eternal and all-powerful presence of God. The one who breathed out the stars. The one who breathed resurrection life back into the dead body of Jesus is the same breath that enlivens you now and proceeds from your very mouth as you proclaim the good news of the gospel. And how sufficient is the Spirit of God? Well, He's God. Right? This is where basic Christian theology helps us. He's God. So his power never runs dry. He's all sufficient. It's a well that never gets dry. And in the gospel, that spirit is legally yours. The Holy Spirit is called your down payment, your assurance of everything that is yours in Christ. And we know that the Spirit will be sufficient for us for whatever comes our way because he was sufficient for Jesus all the way into the grave and out the other side. Look to Jesus and be assured that the Holy Spirit is sufficient for anything that you will face. Jesus and his empowering presence by the Spirit are your confidence for ministry. That's how you can stand up straight when you face down that type of a calling. So two really practical things flow from this, application-wise for us. Pray and rest in the word. First, pray. Pastor Zach Eswine has a wonderful quote in his book, The Imperfect Pastor. And it says this, everything pastors hope will take place in a person's life with God remain outside of the pastor's own power. Let me read that again. Everything pastors hope will take place in a person's life with God remains outside the pastor's own power. And if you're ever wondering, why is pastoring so, why do pastors talk about their job as if it's so hard? That's why. <laughs> That's right, why, right there. 
But it's true for all of us. If gospel ministry rests not in our own resources, but in only what God can do, man, the most practical thing that we can do is pray. There's nothing more practical that we can do than pray and beg God to show up in our lives, to spend time rooting ourselves in him. The resources of heaven are yours by right, and in prayer, you get access to those. So pray. And second, rest in the word. One of the most encouraging quotes for me personally, uh, especially as a pastor, but I think will be encouraging to all of you too, comes from Martin Luther. And in a particularly challenging time in the Reformation, when it wasn't clear whether or not the biblical truths that Luther stood for would actually take root and blossom in the church into the future, Luther said this about his own ministry. He said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no price or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. Luther was so confident in the Holy Spirit and the word of God, and he was so confident in God's sufficiency for ministry, he said, I didn't do anything else except preach the word, sleep, and drink beer. How's that for like one of the last applications you get from your pastor? <laughs> but, but seriously, church, I, I want us all, and God wants us all to have that kind of confidence in the spirit and word of God for ministry. That no matter how challenging a situation we may face, no matter how much scorn or slander we may endure, we can lean on God's word and rest because he is at work in it. This past year of church planting has tempted me with reliance on all kinds of human methods. It's tempted me to be confident in myself, to tempted me towards overworking, to not take a break, to not sleep the way that I ought to. But if the Spirit of God is at work in the Word of God, if that is sufficient for what God has called me to, then I can proclaim Christ, whether from the pulpit here or at Midtown Community Church, I can preach the word of God in counseling. I can preach the word of God in my living room in a community group. I can preach the word of God at a bar with my non-Christian neighbor. And then I can go home and I can go to sleep. Because God is sufficient for the work. God works through his word. And that is true for all of us. And that is such a comfort. That our confidence is not in us. But in him. And to summarize this whole point about the Spirit's sufficiency, this, this quote from Francis Schaeffer is quickly becoming one of my, my favorites. It's from his wonderful sermon, The Lord's Work in the Lord's Way, which is like 10 pages. If you've never read it before, look it up online. You can find a PDF after this. It would bless all of you. But he says this, There is no source of power for God's people, for preaching or teaching or anything else except Christ himself. Apart from Christ, anything which seems to be spiritual power is actually the power of the flesh. If we who are Christians and therefore indwelt by the Holy Spirit are to preach to our generation with tongues of fire, 
we also must have something more than an activism which men can easily duplicate. We must know something of the power of the Holy Spirit. Lastly, the sign of the Spirit's, the sign of the Spirit's sufficiency. If that good news isn't encouraging enough, Paul gives us in this text a place where we can look to assure ourselves that the Spirit is at work in and through us, even when we feel like we're imposters. Look with me at chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. He says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are a letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Now remember, remember the context here. Paul has these detractors at Corinth that are trying to undermine his ministry and attack his authority as an apostle. And one of the things they wanted Paul to do to kind of prove that he was legit was produce a letter of recommendation. This was common practice in that day, was, was to prove that you were a, an actual legitimate speaker. You would get letters of recommendation from the different places where you've spoke and traveled, and you'd present that to say, this guy actually is good at this and, and is legitimate. But Paul claims here that he doesn't need to produce one of those letters because he already has one. The Corinthian church, he says, is his letter of recommendation. The way the Spirit of God has worked in the church commends the Spirit's real work in his own ministry. And notice in verse 2 where that letter is written. It says the letter is written on our hearts. See, Paul was not, didn't view himself and his ministry as just some sort of mechanism to dispense gospel content. He, he wasn't just a mere person who got up to open his mouth to people. Paul's ministry came out of the fullness of his heart. And when he saw this church that he loved change, it affected him deeply and personally. And church, gospel ministry is personal, which is what makes it so hard and so beautiful. And the sign of the Spirit's work among the people of God is not simply results that we can quantify, but a deep, rich unity and love in the Spirit. The Spirit's work in changing human hearts through the gospel that was preached and embodied by Paul validates the legitimacy of his ministry. And if we want to see proof of God's powerful spirit at work in our lives through our weakness, then we have to look no farther than in this very room. We look at one another and see the way that God has worked through us to effect change by his spirit in each other. This is my last sermon here, hopefully not ever, but as one of your pastors. This sermon is not me looking at all of you 
and saying that you have validated my ministry by the way the Spirit's been at work in you. I pray that's true, but that's not it. This sermon is me saying that I have validated your ministry by the Spirit's work in me. The Spirit is at work here in power. God's Spirit is changing people. And we've experienced that. Give me a sec. (laughs) And in front of our whole church, this is uniquely the case for you, Benjamin. I am a letter of recommendation for the power of God at work in your ministry. And so is this church plan. Thank you for your investment in me, not just with content, but with your heart. And church, as a whole, I would encourage all of you, continue to use the Spirit to work in you to build each other up, but continue to invest in people that are young men and women to see them sent out for gospel ministry. There is not a greater impact, I think, that this church will have on our region and on our world than doing that. Do that for Noah and his family and for any other young person who comes in here with gospel chops and excitement. Keep after that. That's a gift of this church. So let me close with this. We need the reminder often that God's spirit is at work within us and through us powerfully. So many of us, so many days, feel like Oz. We feel like imposters. We feel like we can't hack it. We need tangible reminders that the spirit is at work. So, even though God's spirit uses each other's lives as letters of recommendation for us, let me give you an encouragement. Take time this week and write a letter, like an actual letter, to somebody in this church who God's Spirit has used to build you up in Christ. People from MCC especially do this, I would ask you, to somebody here at our church that's encouraged you. Same at community, if there's somebody here at the church or at MCC, and what I'd love for us to do, take the week to write them, and don't make a big deal out of it, but next week, at our combined service, after, afterwards while we're at lunch, find that person, give them that card, and tell them that they're a blessing to you and that God's using them. We need that. We need that. So let me leave you with these words, beloved words to me, uh, from the end of 2 Corinthians, where Paul sums up all the themes of his letter. Everything that we've talked about today is summed up, I think, in this one verse, in chapter 12, verse 9. I hear a few of you turn in there, so I'll wait until, you're, until you get there. Paul says this, 
the, the summary statement of the entire book of 2 Corinthians. Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Church, continue to boast not in what you've got in your own resources. Boast in your weakness so that the power of Christ by his Holy Spirit may continue to rest upon this church and so that we together may be empowered for ministry. Gospel ministry is impossible. It is. That's the point of this text. But with God, all things are possible. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promises of your word. For the sufficiency of your spirit and your presence with us. Lord, I pray that today and the rest of this week as we gear up to launch this church, would you just give us the grace of encouraging us like crazy? Show us how you're working. Give us eyes to see how you're working. Help us to not be stingy with our hearts, but to be generous with encouragement and love over these next two weeks to encourage one another of the ways that you are at work among us. And may all of that be directed toward you, Father, who gave of yourself out of love for each of us. We thank you for your generous heart and your abundant provision. Amen.